Good morning, everyone. Um, so the Parsha shared this week's is Parsha's Ekev. Um, it's an action-packed Parsha. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to focus on really the first Pasuk. But before we do that, I'm just going to go just highlight some of the... Uh, uh, just to mention and highlight some of the famous concepts in the Parsha and just talk a little bit about them and then to the second half of the Shil will be only focusing on the very first Pasuk of the Parsha. Um, so I guess we'll skip out the first Pasuk for now but then I'm just going to, I'll come back to this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share the screen with you. One of the things we have in this week's Parsha is the famous Pasuk that mentions the seven fruit or the seven kinds with which the land of Israel, Eretz Israel, is praised with. Right? And the structure of the Pasuk is an interesting one. Have a look at it. It's number one on the, on the uh, thing. And it says, Eretz Chita Usa'ira. It's a land, Hashem is praising the land of Israel. A few Pasukim there deal with that. And then it highlights the following, and it says, Eretz Chito Sa'ira. It's a land of wheat and barley. The Gefen Usa'ina. Gefen is grapes. Eino is figs. Rimon, Rimon is pomegranates. And then it starts again, and it says, Eretz Zeshemen Udvash. It's a land of olives and olive oil. Udvash, which is honey, which is reference here to date honey. Alright, dates. So, the question is, why... Why does the last two have another word Eretz in it? In other words, it starts the land of wheat, barley, uh, grapes, figs, pomegranates. That's five. And then it says Eretz. It's a land of olives and honey. Right? Zeis, Shem, and Udvash, olives and honey. Date honey, that is. Right? Why would it mention the last two separately? And interestingly enough, by the way, it has tremendous ramifications halachically. I'll just give you an example. If you've got a bunch of things uh, in front of you. For example, let's say you've got, um, you've got grapes, so you've got grapes and figs, and you're planning to eat them both. Now, they both have the same bracha. You're going to make baruch atah Hashem, alakein melechon, priho eitz, right? And then you're going to take one of them, you like them equally, everything's equal. Um, which one should I make the bracha on? Which one takes preference in terms of which one am I making? They're both going to be covered by the same bracha, but which one am I making the bracha on? And the halacha is that whatever's closer to the word Eretz, right? Same thing, that's why you have bread or cake and grapes. Then you make two brachas, but you must make the cake first. Because the word chit or the word barley is, uh, wheat, I'm sorry, is, is closer to the word Eretz. Let's say, for example, if I have a grape and an olive, right? Which one, and I'm going to eat them both. Which one should the bracha be on? The halacha is the olive. Even though the word grape is first in the Pasuk, but the word olive, zeis, is closer to the word Eretz, right? So that's why it, it, it gets pressed into the bracha. So that's a very interesting thing. Why does the Torah do that? So I saw a beautiful <laughs> concept, a little, just an interesting idea from Rameir Simcha from Dvinsk, the Mesha Chachma, famous Pirush, famous commentary on, the, on, on Chumash. And he says the following. He says... There's something very unique about olives and dates. They were not found even in the land of Egypt. When the Jews were there, they were not found. Now, one of the proofs for that is, um, 
Well, a couple of proofs. First of all, we find that we found when the brothers came back after being in, in Egypt getting wheat and, and you know the famine and they went back to Yaakov and they couldn't go back because Yosef wanted Binyamin to come back the younger son Yaakov didn't want to send him so there was a procrastination period over there and then the food was running out and the brothers said look we have to go back and eventually Yaakov agreed to send Binyamin but he said you've got to try and appease this ruler which was Yosef of course they didn't know that at the time uh, and so what did Yaakov did? He sent something special from the land of Israel. What did he send? It says he sent, he, he spent atvash, he said, he sent some dates, honey, date honey, right? Similarly, we found later on when the Yidin complained, they complained many times during the Midbar, but they complained about having to run around the Midbar. And, he, and they said the following, they said to Moshe Rabbeinu, why did you take us out from Egypt to bring us to this bad and, ne- and, and evil place, meaning the desert? And what is this place? It's not even a place of Zerah that we can plant anything, like produce to make bread and stuff. It's not a place of Te'enos. It's not a place of figs. It's not a place of Gefen, a place of, of grapes. It's not a place of Rimon. It's not a place of pomegranates, right? Which actually are the three things in the Pasuk here. Zerah, uh, planting is wheat and barley. And then they said it's not a place of, of grapes, figs, and pomegranates. They didn't say it's not a place of dates and... Olives. Why didn't they say that? Because they weren't missing dates and olives. Because even the times they were in Egypt, they never had that. So although there were slaves in Egypt, of course they didn't have much in Egypt, but they did have they they, they had access to grapes, that access to figs, that access to pomegranates, but not to shemen or dvash. That's uniquely Eretz Yisrael in the context of this passage, right? And that's why that actually explains the halacha that whatever is closer to the word Eretz in the in the pasuk takes precedence in terms of bracha because. These five fruits, besides the wheat and barley, these five fruits are, yes, they are fruit with which Israel is praised, especially grow beautifully in Israel, and Israel is praised and known for those five fruits, but the shemen and the dvash, the olives and the dates, is something unique to Israel, which is why it gets a special mention in the Pasuk next to the special word Eretz, because that didn't even exist in Mitzrayim. Okay, just thought I'd give that over. That's a very interesting idea coming from this week's parasha. Another little concept in this week's parasha, and I'm just mentioning a few concepts before we focus on the, on the opening pasuk of the parasha, which I'm going to go into in more depth. So number two, we have the famous bracha of benching. It's a bracha to bench when we eat bread. What is it? Five grains. What does it tell us? You should eat, you should be satisfied, and you will bless. Hashem your God. And you also bless him for the... Bless him for the for the land and for the good land, Not the Gemara tells us that actually this is uh, the one bracha or, the one, or one of the two brachas that are biblical and it's the bracha of benching and the bracha of benching contains three biblical blessings. It contains a fourth blessing which is rabbinic but it contains three, uh, three um, uh, biblical blessings. One made, the first made by Moshe Rabbeinu, the second by Yoshua and the others by David and Shlomo. The first is about sustenance, food, the, th- the second is about Allah Oretz, the land of Israel, that's Noidelcha, and Hatoiva, the good, which is a reference to Yerushalayim and the Beis Amigdosh, was made by David and Shloim, and that's the way we bench. So I saw just, this is, I mean, lots to talk about benching, but I just saw, I'll share with you a very beautiful discussion that I saw this week. I was giving a Gemara share, and I saw a very fascinating discussion. The first bracha, the Gemara says, the first bracha was made by Moshe Rabbeinu. Why was it made? It was made to bench to bench after they had the manna that fell from heaven to eat, right? Fell from manna. 
which by the way has a philosophical whole depth to it because we still make that bracha even though it was made to bench Hashem for the man that fell from heaven but nevertheless it's important for us to make that bracha because it's important for us to understand that the bread that we eat although it's not coming from heaven it's not falling daily like the manna did it is like manna because actually just like Hashem sent the manna in the desert to sustain the Jewish people it's Hashem that sends us our bread just the same it's as miraculous it looks more natural and we expect it to happen every day but it's actually just as miraculous it's exactly the same the sustenance comes from Hashem exactly the same way as it came from the manna the fact that we plant and we and we do things that's just the vehicle through which it travels but everything ultimately the source of all blessings from God but I saw an opposite problem and that is like this not why we make the bracha nazat the question is why they made it the Gemara is telling us that the first bracha of benching was made by Moshe Rabbeinu as a structure as a format to bench after the eighth the month which is very strange because, I just thought I'd share this to you because it's fascinating in terms of how the mon worked. The bracha of benching, the obligation of benching, is only when you eat something made out of the five grains. It's a meal, it's something you get a meal out, like bread, but it's made out of the five grains, which are wheat, barley, rye, spelt, and oats. Those are the five grains. Now the mon, we know that the mon tasted like many different things, it was what, as, as much as you wanted it to taste, but it wasn't wheat, and it wasn't barley, and it wasn't spelt, and it wasn't rye, and it wasn't oats. And it, was, it was something else. It felt like a cracker of some sort. It fell on the ground, and you decided what it should taste like. That's fine, but it, the bottom line is, it's, it was, it's not really bread, right? It was, it, was actual, it was actual mon, whatever the mon was. And therefore, why was there actually an obligation of mentioning that Moshe Rabbeinu should have to make the first bracha? It wasn't, they weren't eating one of the five grains. So I saw this in the writings of a great Talmudist that lived in the last generation. Not last, I say last, I mean before the war. In Poland, his name was Rabbi Yosef Engel. He wrote many svarim, one of them being uh, Gilyoyna Hashas. And he writes that obviously what the Gemara means is following a, an opinion in the Gemara of Yuma that discusses the man. Because, you know, we always know this principle, we've been used to this idea that the man tasted whatever you wanted it to taste like, except with the exception of a few things. One of the things didn't taste like, by the way, just to explain a nice idea, one of the things didn't taste like was onions, which is why they developed a minhag on Shabbos, where on Shabbos is the time that we remember the man, that's why we have two chalas and so on. So on Shabbos, a lot of people eat what's called ayam mitzibala, which is egg, egg and onion. Right? Egg and onion. The egg is just because it's hard to eat onions alone. But the, but the, the onion is to remember the, the, the taste that didn't happen in the man. Okay, that's just a side thing. So we always know this idea that we, that we eat, that the man tastes whatever you wanted it to taste like with the exception of a few things. However, there's a machloik, there's a dispute in Gomorrah how that actually worked. One opinion is what we normally learned in kindergarten, and that is that the man tastes like all foods, but it didn't, t- didn't look like those foods. It didn't feel like those foods, it just tasted like those foods, right? But then there's an opinion in Gomorrah, I believe it's Rabbi Yochanan's opinion, who says that no, what we mean by the fact that the man tasted like different foods, whatever you wanted it to taste like, it tasted like it and it felt like it. In other words, it, it had the texture and the form and the properties of that food that you wanted it to taste like. In other words, if you wanted it to taste like bread, it looked and felt like bread. So it was bread, in fact. And therefore, when you ate a meal out of it and your wish was that it tasted like bread, you had to bench. And therefore, Moshe Rabbeinu made the bracha of Azon Nesoilam, the first bracha of benching, to bench after the man. I'm mentioning it because over there in that piece, he actually then 
using that principle, explains something else which is fascinating. And it's a question which I never thought about. And, you know, sometimes we're just used to learning things and we don't hop on obvious, glaring questions. So there's a story in the Chumash when the two sons of Aaron, Nodov and Avihu, died. Why did they die? It was a year, almost a year after they left Egypt. It was the completion of the building of the Mishkan. The Mishkan was completed on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the, uh, the, day that, the first, day, this first day of Nisan. It was the day that they erected and inaugurated the Mishkan. And unfortunately, the celebration was affected by the fact that Nadav and Avihu, the two sons of Aaron, went into the Mishkan. They brought, they did something they weren't supposed to do and they died. Now there's Midrashim, there's Chazal talk about the various reasons why they died. And it's a separate discussion to understand why we need those reasons because it seems to be obvious in the Chumash why they died because they brought a fire, they brought incense when they weren't supposed to, whatever the case is. But nevertheless, the Midrash gives different ideas. One of the reasons that's given for the death of Nadav and Avihu was because they went into the Mishkan, they were Koyhanim, they went into the Mishkan, Yayin. they were intoxicated from wine. And it's a very severe transgression. If a Kohen goes in to serve in the Mishkan, intoxicated particularly with wine, that's almost a capital punishment crime, and they're deserving of death, which is why Nadav and Aviyu died. You ask the question, that's a strange region. That's a year after they left Egypt. But where do they get wine from? Where do they get grapes to make wine? They didn't have food in the Midbar. That's why they had the man. That's why they had the Be'erashal Miriam, the well of Miriam, to give hydration. So where did they get wine? Right? So he says, there's obviously a medrash that tells us that just like the man, in terms of solids, in terms of food, tasted like everything you wanted it to taste like, so too the water coming from the well of Miriam tasted like whatever drink you wanted it to taste like. So therefore, if a person wanted to make Kiddush on Friday night, he wanted to have a little fabrengen and say lechaim. He could take water from the Be'erah Miriam, and he could wish for it to taste like wine or taste like whiskey for that matter. And it would taste like whatever he wanted it to taste like. But on the surface, that wouldn't be sufficient to explain the story of Nadav and Avihu. Because if we just say that like, like the manna tasted like it, but it didn't look like it, so then it tasted like wine, but it wasn't wine. So why were they deserving of such a terrible uh, uh, punishment? I mean, it would still be forbidden, but the punishment is only specifically for wine. And therefore he says, but if you explain the concept of benching, you can explain the concept of man as well. Because in other words, the concept was that just like if you, we go according to the opinion, that just like if you wanted it to taste like bread, not only did it taste like bread, but it looked like bread, and, and it had the feeling of bread, the texture of bread, and therefore it really was like bread, miraculous bread, but bread nonetheless, the same thing would be with the Be'era Shomirim, the well of Miriam. That if you wanted it to taste like wine, not only it tasted like wine, and it looked like wine, and it felt like wine, and it became like wine. It had the texture of a grape juice. Of a, of, a, of a beverage that comes from grapes. And therefore, though it was miraculous wine, but it was wine nonetheless, and that would explain the punishment that Nadav and Avihu received. Just a very interesting idea. And this actually, once this discussion comes up, we're not going to go into it now, but it, but it, it, it lends itself to many different discussions about, for example, if that's the case, what happens if you wanted it to taste like something that wasn't kosher? And therefore started to look and feel like something that wasn't kosher. Does that mean you transgress, you, did, you ate non-kosher? Is that like eating treif? 
It goes into the question also, if you wanted the man to taste like matzah, then there could that be a way for them to fulfill the mitzvah of matzah during the time they were in the midbar, which is a discussion among the Rishonim, whether that was possible or not, and so on and so forth. So it leads, it leads to a number of discussions. Okay. Another thing I wanted just to highlight in the Parsha is number three. Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to highlight two more things, then we're going to go into the first Pasuk. Moshe Rabbeinu tells the story or retells the story in this week's parasha of the Egel Hazov, the golden calf. And one of the things he said, he said, when I came down and I saw you serving the golden calf, it was very, it was tragic. And um, there was a disaster, there was a tragedy. What happened to the tragedy? We know that Moshe Rabbeinu broke the first set of tablets. And in the pasuk here, number three, in your hand, it says, V'etpois pishnei haluchois. Moshe Rabbeinu says, I grabbed hold of the two luchais, two tablets, and I threw them from my hands, and I broke them before your eyes. So I mentioned this at a shir lately, but I'm not sure sure it was, so I'm just going to say it over. I, heard, I once read a beautiful, beautiful story. After the war, we know there were a lot of tzibroch and a yidin, a lot of yidin were really broken. There was a particular Jew who belonged to the, in Poland, they belonged to the Gera Hasidim. Now the Gera Hasidim were a very, very large group before the war, huge group actually, they were the main Hasidists in Poland. And uh, they also suffered the most. They were wiped, most of them were wiped out. The Rebbe of Gera at the time, the Imre Emes, made it to Israel and tried to rebuild, and, but he died a short time later, then his son, the Beis Yisrael, um, took over and built it up again. Today it's again a very large, large Hasidic, Hasidic court. This particular Jew, he made it also, to, he survived the war and he came into Israel and he'd just given up everything. He was broken, he lost a bit of his amunah, of course we can't judge that. He just stopped doing Torah mitzvahs and so on and so forth. But he still felt a very closeness to the Gera Hasidim. And so he understood that in Israel the Gera Rebbe is there. And after a while, being disconnected to his community, he felt a yearning to reconnect. He felt he missed it. He missed the thing and he decided, you know what? He's going he's gonna to come to the Gera Rebbe. Came to the Gera Rebbe. Didn't quite look like a Gera Chassid anymore, but he came to the Gera Rebbe. He sat down and he said, and he just started to cry. He said, how could it happen? How could it be? And he cried and he cried. And as he started to cry, the Ger Rebbe himself, who had lost many members of his family during the war, also started to cry and they cried together. And then the Ger Rebbe wanted to lift him up, wanted to inspire him, wanted to encourage him to reconnect. And he says, I want to tell you something. He says, I want to tell you a vort, he says. And the Ger Rebbe picked up on this passage where it says, luchais. I grabbed the two luchais, I threw them down, and, and, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, and I broke them in front of your eyes. So the Gera Rebbe asked this Yid and he said, I want, to, I want to know, we know that every word in the Chumash is exact. Every word in the Chumash is counted for. There's a reason why every word is there. So what would have been missing in the Pasuk if the, the, the tragedy was that the Luchos that they were supposed to get, the gift they were supposed to get in terms of the Ten Commandments broke. That was the tragedy. And they had to get a new one which only came on Yom Kippur months later. So the pastor could have just said, 
I grabbed the luchos, and I threw them down, and I broke them. Stop. Why did the Pasuk have to add, I broke them before your eyes. So the Gerer Rebbe took the hand of the Seed and he said, I want to explain to you what happened here. Moshe Rabbeinu was telling the Jewish people a very important message, not just telling them a story. He was telling them a message, he was giving them a message that would stand them instead, would stand them as an encouragement, as a support, as a chizuk for all generations. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I broke the luchas. Breaking the luchas was a terrible tragedy. It was a disaster at the time. It was really a, a, a cause of great sadness and anguish. But said Moshe Rabbeinu, I want you to know, I broke the luchas, but that's only le'inechem. That's only in front of your eyes. In the world that you live in. In the world that you see. In the world that you connect to. But you need to understand that's not the only world. That's not the only reality. There's a reality higher. There's a reality deeper. There's a metaphysical, spiritual reality that exists beyond this physical world. And in that world, says Moshe Rabbeinu, I didn't break the luchas. That world, I didn't break the luchas. That, in that world, the luchas were never broken. There was never destruction. There was never disaster. Which I guess came out later in the second luchas. The second luchas were even greater than the first, we are told. And therefore, it turned out that the breaking of the luchas was in fact a preparation out of the breaking of the luchas came even more greatness. Said the Gerarebbe to the seed, and of course only, a Ger- only the Gerarebbe who suffered himself could say this to, to him. It wouldn't, be anyone for, any, it wouldn't be for anyone else to say it to him. But he said, yes, terrible, terrible disasters happened. Terrible, terrible tragedies happened. And there's not only the only time, but throughout history these, these things happened. But you need to understand, and, and therefore there's a lot of breaking that goes on. The Yidin were broken on a, on a, on a, on a number of levels. But you need to understand, he said to the seed, the power of Am Yisrael. The power of Am Yisrael to bounce back because, where does that power come from? The, the power comes from the fact that we know that va'ashabreim, that breaking the luchos is only le'inechem, it's only what you see in the world that we live in. There's an existence, there's a level, there's a reality where the luchos never break, where there is no destruction. And from that level you rebuild. And he brought this back, Jew, he brought this, back, this Jew back to be reconnected to his community and reconnected to his Amuna. So just a beautiful idea in the, in the Pasuk of Hashem and I thought I'd share it with you. Finally, before we go to the first Pasuk, another famous Pasuk here in this week's Pasha, so many famous Pasukim. When Moshe Rabbeinu turns around to the Jewish people and he says, What's Hashem asking from you? Not much. All he's asking you is to fear God. To fear God. your God. To go in His ways. To love Him. To serve Him. With all your heart, with all your soul. Not much. That's all He's asking from you. To fear Hashem alone is a very difficult thing. What does it mean that's all He's asking from you? So of course the Gemara says, what does it mean? The Gemara says, He's fearing Hashem. Such an easy thing. What does it mean that Moshe says to the Jewish people, after all, what's Hashem asking for you? Just to, just to fear Him. That's not an easy thing to do. What do you mean? And the Gemara gives an answer which is even more strange. The Gemara says, in, yes, legabe Moshe milsa zutrasi. For Moshe, it's easy. Moshe Rabbeinu was so connected to Hashem. He was so one with Hashem. His spiritual consciousness and his, and his, and his connection and his level was so strong. And for him, yes, to fear Hashem was obvious. It was natural almost. But the obvious question is, what kind of answer is that? 
Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't talking to himself, he was talking to the Jewish people. Moshe Rabbeinu knew the Jewish people, he knew that they weren't on his level. So what do you mean it's easy for you? So in many places explain the following idea very briefly, and that is that at the root of every neshama there's a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu. What the Gemara is trying to say is we have to dig, dig deep and find the Moshe Rabbeinu in us. In other words, we all have a spark in our neshama where being connected to Hashem and fearing Hashem is natural. It's just a natural thing to do. The challenges that we have to do, learn Torah and do mitzvahs, the challenge we have to overcome uh, challenges from within, from without, whatever the case is, all those challenges come from other parts of Anashama, but there exists a part of Anashama, which is the deepest part of Anashama, where connecting with Hashem is just natural. Where those, where those obstacles don't even mean anything, they're not even relevant. Which is the source, that part of us, that the source of the idea of mysterious nefesh, of giving up our life for Hashem, because it's just a natural thing to do. So that's what the Gemara means when it says, in yes, Lagabi Moshe, Miltus, Milzutasi for Moshe, it was easy, meaning find the Moshe in you. Find that part of your Neshama like that, that's like Moshe Rabbeinu. That for him to serve Hashem is a natural thing. And that's when it becomes easy. So that's the idea in this passage. Okay, so there's four, four little ideas that I thought I would share with you before we go on to the first passage of the Pasha. Now, let's have a look at the first passage of the Pasha. We mentioned it before, but we're going to tangle it from a different, a different angle a bit. So the Pasuk is in the middle of Moshe Rabbeinu's speech to the Bnei Yisrael and he says the following. He says, V'hoyo, number five, V'hoyo, it will come to me. Ekev tishmu'un. Now I'm going to translate it the way most people translate it, which is literally, well, I wouldn't say literally because Rashi doesn't translate it like that, but the, the simple translation which would be suggested through the simple writing and grammar of the words. So V'hoyo, Ekev tishmu'un, because you will listen. You listen to these laws that Hashem gives you. You will guard them, protect them, and do them. Observe them. So what will happen? Hashem will reward us. How will He reward us? Hashem, your God, will protect for you, will guard for you, and, and remember for you, so to speak, the covenant, the kindness, that was sworn, promised to your forefathers. In other words, Hashem will give us the Abundant reward of all times, eventually for keeping mitzvahs and following in Hashem's ways. Now, first of all, just want to point out that the first word of the pasuk of Ahoya is actually highlights something that when do we get the reward from Hashem? Not just by serving Hashem. Ahoya means you know the Gemara tells us that the word vayehi is an expression of, of pain. Anytime you find Vayihi, except for a few exceptions, it means some trouble's coming. The word Vahoya is an expression of joy. Simcha. Ein Vahoya Ella Basimcha. So really, according to some Pirushi, according to some commentary, with the Pasuk is saying, yeah, Vahoya, if you have Simcha, if you have joy in serving Hashem, these laws, Hashem will promise, promise us they'll reward us. Okay. But the problematic part of this Pasuk is not the Vahoya. The problematic part of this pasuk is the word Ekev. Ekev. Because although it could be read, V'hoyo Ekev Tishman, and it will be because you will listen, that's not the word, that's not the, that wouldn't be the normal phrase. Right? That's, that's what I, if that's all Hashem wanted to say in this pasuk, it would be a different phrase. It would be, uh, I don't know, Biglal or Mishum or, or other expressions that are normally more commonly used. 
For the expression is that as a result of you doing this, you'll get this, or because you must not share, you get a reward. There are much other, there are more common words that are normally used. So why does it use the word akev in this passage? So I'm going to share with you a number of different ideas. The, I'm, going to share with you, I'm going to share with you Rashi's one to the end, but at the end, but first let's go through another one. It's all the, the number of, of, of commentaries on the word akev, which of course is the name of the parasha also, has to do with the fact that the word Akev means a heel. Means a heel. Like Yaakov, right? Yaakov was called Yaakov because when he was born, his hand was holding the heel of Esau. That's who got the name Yaakov, right? So, therefore, many commentaries on this passage all are based on this idea that the word Akev means a heel. Therefore, one way to understand it, it means like this. That Akev means, a hill is the end of the body. So the word Akev in this passage refers to the end of Jewish history. Which according to one explanation, there's two ways to understand that. One explanation, that means the time before Moshiach, the time we're in now. Right? Beautiful thing, that the passage is talking about our times. Right? So what does that mean? It's called in the Gemara, Ikfasid the It's the heels of Moshiach, which means it's, it's the last... End of Golos, and it's the time when you're ready, you can start hearing, you know, the footsteps of Mashiach, but Mashiach hasn't come yet. Says the Tiferes Shleima, says the Radomsky Rebbe, this is what the Pasuk means. Vehoya, it will come to be. Ekev Tishmu, the Hashem is promising us great reward in this Pasuk at the end. But you know why we're going to get the reward? Because Ekev Tishmu'un. That we keep the mitzvahs at the time of Mashiach, time before Mashiach. And he explains, what does that mean? He says, because it's very easy to fall into a trap and to, and to recognize and to acknowledge and to express the concern that our mitzvahs do not compare at all to the mitzvahs of our forefathers. The mitzvahs in the time of the Gemara, the mitzvahs in the time of the Mishnah, or the mitzvahs in the time of the Besam Migdosh, or the mitzvahs in the time of Eish Rabbeinu. Right? After all, we know that there's a concept in, 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 in the Torah called Yerudah Sadoris. There's a concept of the descent of the generations. We are at a very, very low level. When we do a mitzvah, how much can we think? How much do we know? How much do we understand? How much can we stay focused? How much kavana can we really put into the mitzvah that we have? Do we really understand the significance of mitzvahs? Our mitzvahs are done very simply. We're all posh at the year. We're all simple Jews. We take out a pair of fill in the morning, put it on. We light a Shabbos candle. We give tzedakah. Our mitzvahs don't compare. And it's hard. There's so many temptations, there's so many distorted values. Sometimes we don't even do the mitzvah properly. Sometimes we sort of get swept up, we become lazy to do the mitzvahs, all because of the bombardment of modernity and the distorted values that today's world brings with it. Right? We're just at the tail end. We the heel. That's how we, that's how we are. So therefore, if we the heel, no, what significance is there to the mitzvahs that we do? So Gerdomska says, this is what Hashem is telling us in the Pasuk. You know what? You want to know why there's going to be joy? You want to know why there's going to be the bris and the chesed, the reward that Hashem will give us, the abundant reward? It's because of Ekev Tishmon. Those mitzvahs are the most precious. When Hashem sees a yid in a very, very dark gullus, as we are in, with all the spiritual bombardments and threats that we have to our keeping our mitzvahs, with the physical challenges, with the low level of spiritual consciousness that we have, and yet Hashem sees the yidl that's coming up and he's getting out of bed to daven, to learn, to do a mitzvah. Eikev tishmon. It's the mitzvahs that are listened to and observed at the Eikev, at the end, 
be, before Mashiach comes. That's the that's the that's the the cause of the reward. That's what Adamska says. But there's another way to understand the word Akev. Akev just means the, like a hill, means the end of time, means when Mashiach comes. Which really what the Pasig is actually saying is that there will be a, a great reward. When will Hashem ultimately reward us? When Mashiach comes. Right? Now, I want to just read with you a, just, to, just to build it up a little bit and to share with you a very fascinating Hassam Soifer. I want to share with you a medrash. This is a medrash which is the introductory piece of medrash, rubber to Parshas Ekev. And the medrash starts with something seemingly completely irrelevant. But we'll see what what the relevance is in a minute. I'm going to learn it through it. It's on the screen. Says the medrash. Halacha, says Halacha, Adam Yisrael, a Jew, who yeshloi menorah? He has a menorah. Menorah means he has a candelabra, but it's a type of candelabra. Shasuya prokim prokim. It's made out of different pieces. It's a menorah you have to put together. You have to assemble it from different pieces. What's the halacha? Can we move that menorah on Shabbos? Is it muksa or you're allowed to move that menorah on Shabbos? So medrash says the medrash kach shonu chachamim. This is what the chachamim learned. That Hamarkiv Kanei Menorah B'Shabbos. That if someone takes the different parts of the Menorah and assembles it together on Shabbos, Chayev Chatos, he's transgressed Shabbos. That's considered building. Amar Rabavo, because Rabavo explains, Mishumam Chayev, why is that considered breaking Shabbos? Because Amar Rabavo, B'Shem Rabbi Yechanan, Rabavo says, Name Rabbi Yechanan, Hamarkiv is a Menorah B'Shabbos, Kaodim Shaboyna B'Shabbos. If someone assembles the menorah from different parts on Shabbos, that constitutes the activity of building on Shabbos. And if someone builds anything on Shabbos, it's considered a desecration of Shabbos. That's why we don't, we're not allowed to build anything on Shabbos. No construction on Shabbos. Continues the Medrash. Omar Rabbi Yosef Rabbi Yosef Chanina says, Eimasai Shomru Yisrael Shabbos Keshem Shiroilo. When did the Yidin really keep Shabbos properly? When they, you know, I mean, they had a symbolic Shabbos even in Egypt that a day off. But when did they keep Shabbos as a mitzvah? Says the Medrash, It was when it was given to them before the giving of the Torah in a place called Olush. Right? So you might think, therefore, that Hashem gave you the, the Shabbos to inconvenience you for your, for your detriment. You should know the Shabbos is given to you for only for your good. What does that mean? Says the Medrash explains. Ketzat, what does it mean? I'm just going to go through the whole Medrash and then explain it. Amr Rabkhir Abba says, At Mekadesh is a Shabbos, if you sanctify the Shabbos, but Michael, the Mishnah, Baksus Nakia would eat and drink with nice clothes, and you give benefit to your soul, I will reward you. And in will give you schar, and the rest of the paragraph talks about the pasuk that Hashem says will give us the reward. Says the Medrash, Amru lo Yisrael. So the Yidden say to the Yidden say to, to, to Hashem, Amos say out to When are you going to give us that reward on the for the for the mitzvahs that we do? Hashem says, the mitzvahs that you do, mi atem oichlim, you can. Derive benefit from now, like fruits. You can be- take the fruits from it now. 
But that's not the real reward. That's just the fringe benefits of the mitzvahs. That we have all we talk, mitzvahs, mitzvahs bring good things. But the real reward you should know, the Eikevani Noiselechem, I'm going to give you the, the mitzvahs, the reward for mitzvahs at the very end, meaning when Mashiach comes. That's why that's, this is the introduction to the Eikev. That means, Eikev Tishmon. The Eikev, the end, for keeping the mitzvahs, Hashem says the ultimate reward will be in Oilam Habo, in the world to come, which can be understood either in the world to come after a person finishes the, 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 his stay on this world, or when Mashiach comes after the whole process, the experience is over. The Ekev, I know, I'm going to give it to you in Ekev. Which is what we say in the Pasuk, in this big parasha, and it will be in the Ekev, I will give you the reward, and that's what it means. So it's a very strange Medrash, because it seems like, it seems like, the punchline of the Medrash is the punchline of the Medrash is that the ultimate reward for mitzvahs are not in this world. Like the Gemara says, Sar mitzvah Baha'i al Malaka, that it's really it's impossible to get the full reward for a mitzvah in this world. We get the benefits, but not the full not, not the full benefit. And then I could, at the point the punchline of the Medrash is that the ultimate reward for mitzvahs will be Akev, Mashiach comes, after this life. Alright? If that's the case, why do we need the whole introduction for Shab- of Shabbos? And secondly, even more strange is, why do we need the introduction of this s- seemingly random halacha of Shabbos about a specific detail that if you put together a menorah, if you take a candelabra which is made in different pieces and you assemble the connecting pieces on Shabbos, that's a problem because it's considered boyne, it's considered building. What relevance does it have to the punchline that the ultimate reward for mitzvahs is in the world to come? So I'll just share with you two thoughts. One from the Chassam Soifer and the other one from the Me'a Shiloh, the Ishbitzer Rebbe. The Chassam Soifer says, the great Chassam Soifer says, that there's a famous question that the Mufarshim, the commentaries ask, on what Chazal tell us, that really there's no real reward for mitzvahs in this world. Now, the concept of reward and punishment, by the way, is a concept. I mean, that's one of our fundamentals of our faith. One of the 13 principles of faith. That there is a reward for mitzvahs. That doesn't mean we should do mitzvahs because of the reward. But on the other hand, we are still human beings. So therefore, sometimes we do have to have the incentive of reward. Whatever the case is. But, but the concept exists. So the Gemara says, the schar, the reward, the ultimate reward for mitzvahs is not in this world. So the first of asked the question, we know a famous idea. We've mentioned it many, many times that Hashem keeps all of the mitzvahs that He tells us to do. Right? Hashem keeps Shabbos. That's why there was a, a question in the Gemara of how Hashem could water grass on Shabbos. Hashem puts on tefillin according to the Gemara in Brachis. And there's a question in the Gemara what is written in Hashem's tefillin. Obviously, He doesn't physically put on tefillin, but spiritually, whatever that means. We know the famous idea that uh, the one the non-Jewish ruler asked, asked one of the sages of the, ta- of the Gemara if Hashem buried Moshe Rabbeinu, that means he, was a, he was, became impure and it says that Hashem is a Koyen. So how could He do that? And so on and so forth. We have ongoing discussion about Hashem is bound, so to speak, by His own mitzvahs. If that's the case, one of the 613 mitzvahs is a mitzvah that's called Bal Tolim. If someone works for you, if someone works for you, and you pay, there's, a, there's a structure of how he gets paid. So let's say a person uh, works for you as a day worker, he does a job for you, and, the, and the, the deal is that at the end of the day you pay him his wages. There's an issue, there's a prohibition to delay those wages overnight. Someone works for you for the week, you have to pay him at the end of the week. In other words, paying on time. Paying on time is 
not just a nice thing to do, paying on time is a mitzvah in the Torah. It's a mitzvah in the Torah. One of the 630 mitzvahs. Says the Chassam Sofer, the Mepharshim asked the question, so how can the Gemara say that Hashem does not reward us fully for the mitzvahs that we do in this world? We should be rewarded with each mitzvah separately. Hashem is delaying our payment. He's not paying on time. It reminds me, you know, there was a... It's, it's, it's really unrelated, but just a cute little story. The story they tell about a Hasidic rabbi came from Poland and he gave a big drosha in Germany. Now, you know, the culture in Germany, the culture in Poland is very different. Germans are much more structured and, and, and punctual people. In Polish, they were much more, they had, I guess, more warmer, but less, less structured and less organized. Myself. So he gave this drosha in a shul in Germany and he talked about the idea of giving tzedakah. And he said that Chazal tell us when you give tzedakah, it comes back more than once. The reward for tzedakah, the blessing of tzedakah is amazing. You know, lose out from giving tzedakah and so on and so forth. Anyway, there was a little Yid sitting there and he listened very, very uh, intently. And he took it seriously and he gave a lot of tzedakah. And he gave so much tzedakah that actually he went bankrupt. He lost his money. And he was very upset because he was promised in the drush that he's gonna it's gonna bring blessing. And he thought to himself, when I find that rabbi, oh, he's in trouble. Eventually, after a couple of years, he actually it did turn around. And actually Hashem blessed him in the most amazing way and he became very well. That's the story, how it goes. And then a few months later, after his tremendous success, who does he see in the street? The rabbi from a few years ago. In the meantime, the rabbi had heard the story that he'd lost his money, this guy. And the rabbi suddenly turns around and he sees this year, he sees him running after him. So he runs away. And they're running after. He's running and they're running and they're running and running. Eventually, 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 this guy catches up with the rabbi and the rabbi is petrified that he's going to get it over the head for promising something that never came true. So the guy, as soon as he catches him, he says, he says, just calm down. He says, I just wanted to tell you, and he says in German, it will sound better. He says, Ayer Gott is Arnklach oder nicht Pinklach. He says, I just wanted to tell you that your God is honest, but he's not punctual. He gave me, he, he rewarded me eventually, but not, but not, but not on time. It took, it, took, it took a long time. Anyway, so, the, so the, the concept is, how can Hashem, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to pay on time, so therefore the Mepharshim asked the question, since the Gemara says that there's no, that, 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 that there's no real reward in this, in this world for a mitzvah, why not? Hashem has to pay on time. Says of some soifer, uh, this is what this Medrash is trying to tell us. The Medrash starts off that the menorah, when you put together a candelabra, which is made of different pieces, you assemble it, and it becomes a menorah, that's when you transgress the Shabbos, for, and that's when it's considered building. Why does the Medrash start with that example? So because it says some Sofer, because the punchline of the Medrash is telling us that Hashem ultimately is going to reward us later. So therefore, the Hashem has to explain why He's not paying on time. And the reason is because there's a halacha, that when do you have to pay on time? That's when the job is finished. But if someone does a job, and the job has many parts to it, there's no obligation, luckily, to pay on time. You pay at the completion of the job. Therefore, the Medrash is saying, you think when you do mitzvahs, you've completed the job. No. All the mitzvahs that we do in our life is part of a journey. It's a cumulative all the mitzvahs that all the Yidden do throughout the ages is accumulative. It's all putting together one giant menorah. 
one giant candelabra that's going to produce tremendous light. And when that menorah is finished, that's when the building is complete, and that's when we get the reward for, for Shabbos and for all the other mitzvahs in the times of Mashiach. And that's what the Pshat in the Pasuk is. That the reward will come at the end. Says the Medrash, what do you mean it's going to come in the end? That's a problem if it comes at the end. Because Hashem has to pay on time. Says the Medrash, there's a halacha that building is when you put together something that's considered a new entity because the job isn't really finished until all parts of the menorah have been properly assembled. The Ishbitzer gives a little bit of a different take. And he says the following, he says that what Hashem is really telling us is this. The reason that the Medrash starts with Shabbos and starts with this concept of the Menorah because when we talk about putting together a Menorah and Shabbos it highlights the one of the 39 uh, prohibited activities which is the activity of building. And the Ishmael says we know that when the activity of building there's a halach in Shulchan Aruch that there's an issue, there's a prohibition to to build on Shabbos. And how much do you have to build to be considered breaking Shabbos so to speak? Even a drop, even a tiny bit. If you knock one nail into a wall, that's considered building already. Right? That's what the Gemara starts off with the halacha building. It says the Ijit, so what the Medrash is really doing, the Medrash is highlighting the seeming difficulty with mitzvahs, the detail, the, the burden of mitzvahs. The, 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 I mean, we sort of, you know, when you, when you, when you, live a life of Torah mitzvahs, sort of you get used to it after a while, but really if you take a step back, you know, if you told the person I don't know anything about mitzvahs, you told him, you know, I'm Shabbos, I have to worry about what, how much cups I use for making my tea. First cup, the second cup, and this detail, and that detail, I think you're completely crazy. Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, the, 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 you know, the, the day of rest is a good thing. But to, to be so obsessed with details, minutiae, same thing with mezuzah, how you like the letter, one, one, one speck, one line can make all the difference, and so on and so forth. And then the Medrash goes on and he says, and when did the Yidin actually get to keep the Shabbos properly? I mean, like, like it's, it's, it's an, a mammoth job. When did they get to keep it properly? Says the Medrash, right away. Hashem gave them opportunity. Hashem gives us these very complicated mitzvahs, but He gives us the ability to keep them. And therefore they kept them right away. Says the Medrash, says the, says the Medrash but I know it's not going to work for everyone. Sometimes people are going to come into some sort of wall, brick wall, where they just say, this is too much for me. This is really seems meaningless. I can't see the point in this. This detail, this burden, this amazing complication that is, that is, that is, that is so enmeshed in all the mitzvahs. Said the Medrash, but as you'll understand, Vahoya. Vahoya is an expression of simcha. Akev, at the end of it all, the revelation will come. The difficulty that we put into mitzvahs, the difficulty that we have in putting, investing effort in the mitzvahs, there will come a time, Eka, where Hashem rewards us for all the mitzvahs. Part of that reward is going to be that He will reveal to us the significance of those mitzvahs. The mitzvah will be revealed. In fact, the reward for the mitzvah will be the mitzvah itself. Everything will become clear. Any when Mashiach comes, any challenge, any obstacle, any struggle that we had in keeping a mitzvah will suddenly disappear. We'll see, wow, it was all worth it. It was amazing. Because the mitzvah will be revealed. Right now, Hashem doesn't expose that to that because... Because that's part of the point. Part of the point is that we should believe in it and we should make it ours and we should, and we should invest the effort anyway. But the concept is that when we do struggle, and sometimes we do, with the seeming burden of the mitzvahs, now we have to just believe it. And when Mashiach comes, we'll see it. 
just like the, the, the minute details of Shabbos, when you build one thing, you're not going to nail it's a problem. All these hundreds and thousands of halachas that govern our lives, that almost make it impossible to bear, the simcha will be when Mashiach comes and Hashem rewards us. The reward will be the revelation of the mitzvah itself. That's another idea in this marriage. But finally, we come to the final pshat in this pasuk, that Ekev doesn't mean the end of time, but Ekev means a type of mitzvah. And that's Rashi. So let's have a look at the Rashi, the famous Rashi, where Rashi says that that Hashem says, I'm going to reward you. Why is He going to reward you? Because Ekev Tishmon, you're going to observe the mitzvahs that are Ekev type mitzvahs. What does Ekev type mitzvahs mean? Remember, the word Ekev means a heel. Says Rashi, Im is hakalos. If those like light mitzvahs, those seemingly unimportant mitzvahs, Sh'odam dosh that sometimes people tread on with their heels, tishmun, and you'll keep those mitzvahs. Those mitzvahs will bring you the reward. It's those mitzvahs that are special. So, on a very simple level, what does Rashi mean? Rashi means that sometimes people keep certain mitzvahs. They prioritize. They say, this, this mitzvah is important. This halacha is important, this halacha is not important. Eh, this is just, it's not so bad. Hashem will understand this one. This is, this is okay. No, that's not an approach of a yid. Of course, we can't take everything on at one shot. After we have to grow. But, but the, pro, the mindset has to be, you know, every mitzvah is important. And therefore, not only that, but Rashi, the Torah is telling us that if you keep the ones that you normally just step on because you think they're not important, that's worth stepping on. And you keep those mitzvahs, the ones you step on with the heel, the akev mitzvahs, that brings the ultimate reward. But it's not just the lack of observance in those mitzvahs. It actually goes a lot deeper. And I'm just going to share with you in conclusion a, a, a concept that was once spoken about by the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he brings a Gemara. The Gemara is based on a Pasuk in Tilim. And this is number eight over here. David HaMelech, King David says in, in, in Tilim, he says, Lomo ira bimeira. Why am I afraid? Why am I afraid and fearful and almost like anxious in the days that are difficult. Why, why do I have... Moshe was, re, was reflecting. He says, I'm scared that in days that are tough, I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to have anxiety. I'm going to be, you know. So says Torah I know the answer. The answer is, Avoin Akeva Yesubeni. I'm worried about the sins of the heel that they will surround me and they will cause me anxiety. Says the Gemara, what does that mean? It says, says the, uh, it's actually a Medrush, says the Medrush, what does that mean? Dovod HaMelech was saying, obviously Dovod HaMelech knew that he kept all the mitzvahs and he was a tzaddik and so on. But Dovod HaMelech was saying, Shema of Varti, I'm worried about those mitzvahs that people think aren't important, maybe I transgressed them, maybe I didn't do it properly. And I know, says Dovod HaMelech, that you have taught us that we should keep a small mitzvah with the same seriousness that we keep a big mitzvah. And I'm worried I didn't do that. I didn't do that. So the obvious question is, what does that mean? David HaMelech was an absolute tzaddik. He kept every mitzvah. No question about it. Every mitzvah. The small mitzvahs, the big mitzvahs, whatever that means. So what was he actually afraid of? So let me explain like this. What's this expression, mitzvahs of the heel? What does it mean, the heel? Stepping on, who steps on mitzvahs, Right? Or this Rashi is brought similarly in the different Medrash where the Medrash talks about the mitzvahs that people throw under the heel. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that we actually trample on them. It's not even talking about someone that doesn't keep those mitzvahs. We're talking about people that keeps all the mitzvahs. But 
We're talking about a trap that we could all fall into. And even David HaMelech, in his level, he says, he can also subtly maybe fall into it. And that is the following. See, the, 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 the Torah tells us, Pirkei says, there is a concept of a strict mitzvah and, a, and an easier mitzvah, of a more important mitzvah, less important mitzvah. We see that even from the consequences of the mitzvahs. There are some mitzvah Hashem says, if a person does them, it's high of kores. He'll be excised from the world, so to speak. What does that mean? There are some mitzvahs which don't have such a big consequence, right? There are certainly mitzvahs which take priority over mitzvahs. For example, I mean, that's, 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 that's unquestionable. If someone, if someone is genuinely growing in Torah mitzvahs but cannot take everything on one, on one, one go, of course there's a priority. But the general mindset of a person has to be, not only has to keep all the mitzvahs, but really we have to develop an, a mindset where we give the same importance to every mitzvah. That when we wash for bread and we keep Shabbos, or we eat matzah on Pesach night, or we daven the ilah on Yom Kippur, it's all the same. I mean, that's very difficult, I have to say, but, but, but that's, that's the lesson here. What David Amalek was saying is, I'm not worried I didn't keep any mitzvahs, but I'm worried I gave less focus, or in a subtle way, less importance. Or maybe I delayed one mitzvah. I said, you know, I'll do it later. But it's not so important. I'll rush to the more important mitzvahs first. That's what the Torah is saying now. The reward, the Ekev Tishmu, and the ultimate connection to Hashem comes when we don't do that. When we don't, because we understand that every mitzvah represents what we call the Ratzah in Hashem. You see, what does that mean? So it goes like this, right? Just, just to, to explain this for just a minute, and we'll, we'll finish with that. Mitzvahs are different. So I'll give you an analogy. If I ask someone to do something for me, that's very, very important to me. And I give them a specific instructions. I say, could you do me a favor? Could you please build me a home? I want a certain type of carpet. I want the, pe- the walls to be painted a certain way. And I want the chandeliers to look a certain way. And I want the doorknobs to be a certain color. Okay. And... This is a person that works for me or is, 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 is answerable to me and it's really important to me that the job gets done in its entirety. So the guy goes off and he, and he, and he builds a house exactly 100% but one of the walls are not painted the color that I want. Right? So on one hand, there's no question that it's different to not building the house altogether. Right? Building the house is more important in a way than, than, than painting that particular wall purple. Right? That is true. And if there was an emergency, the guy says, listen, I really can't do it at all. Tell me what's the biggest priority. I might say the house is the bigger priority. But if someone, but that's from the point of view of functionality, because obviously the house is more critically functional than the paint on the wall. But if the end result is the person comes to me and says, listen, I did whatever you want, but I don't care. But I mean, what difference does it make what paint you have on the wall? So the bottom line is the guy didn't listen to me. Because I had a, a bunch of different things that I want. And he disregarded me. With, in terms of the functional consequence, in what, in what the, the different tasks are supposed to accomplish, yes, there's differences. But in terms of the disregard for me, what I wanted him to do, there's no difference. If, if, if I feel disregarded, there's no difference if he disregarded me on the house or he disregarded me on, on, what, on what color the, the, the color of the wall should be. Because I said I really wanted, I was very specific, everything has to be there. So it doesn't matter what detail you left out. Either detail, very important, less important, highly functional, lesser functional, the disregard is the same. And the same thing is with mitzvahs. 
there are differences between one mitzvah and another. Of course there are. And every mitzvah we do is special. Every mitzvah connects us to, to Hashem. But when we develop a mindset that we will keep one mitzvah quicker or with more focus or give it priority in any way because eh, this is a more important mitzvah than the other, that's a problem. Because that means that we are, because we need to understand that every mitzvah is the will of Hashem. Giving one mitzvah, weakening one mitzvah, disregarding one mitzvah means disregarding the will of Hashem. It makes a difference what the mitzvah is. So that's what Lovod Melech was afraid of. In a, of course I kept all mitzvahs, but did I give one more importance than the other in priority? And that's what the Pasuk is telling us, that that you need to keep the mitzvahs of the heel, which means you need to make sure that you don't prioritize one mitzvah of another, that our mindset, maybe functionality, maybe practically our advice is to keep one mitzvah over another. But in terms of our, in terms of our, 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 our focus has to be that every mitzvah is the rots in Hashem. Every mitzvah, even the ones that we tend to put under the heel, give a last priority, every mitzvah is exactly the same. And those are a few different perspectives on the Pasuk, which uses the expression of Akev. Okay, we'll stop there.